Austin, welcome to BNN News. We're so sorry we missed you yesterday due to unforeseen circumstances, but today is Tuesday, June 14th, 2022. I'm Kelly Ransom. And I'm Faith Maffedon, and thank you for joining us. On Sunday, June 12th, 2022, obviously, the Battle of Bunker Hill Parade uh, took over the streets of Charlestown for a beautiful day of family fun. The Bunker Hill Day Parade is a tradition in Boston since 1786 and commemorates the Battle of Bunker Hill, which was fought on Breed's Hill on June 17, 1775. The Battle of Bunker Hill was the first major battle of the American Revolution. Designing Motherhood, Things That Make or Break Our Births opened on Saturday, June 11th at the Mass Art Museum. The critically acclaimed exhibition explores human reproduction through the lens of art and design from the 19th century to present day. Curated by a team of design historians, birth advocates, and medical and midwifery history experts, the exhibit showcases nearly 200 works exploring the evolution of societal rights and norms from contraceptive to postpartum experiences. Hi everyone, I'm delighted to welcome you to Designing Motherhood on view at the Mass Art Art Museum, or as we like to call ourselves, MAM. You might be wondering why this exhibition and why here? Actually, this is a wonderful show and we're so excited to showcase it here because everyone is born. We are all born. Uh, it's a shared universal experience and this show shows you all the aspects about this particular process. Until um, recently, uh, birth, the birthing experience was very much a universal and shared experience, but also a very uh, similar experience for all. And it wasn't until advancements with technology and design and um, science when the culture of birth advanced without it being really talked about or examined. And Designing Motherhood brings this topic to the forefront so that we can talk about it and examine it. Um, this exhibition showcases over a hundred objects from design and fine art, and that's part of the reason why we are doing this show here. MAM is part of the Mass Art uh, community, the Massachusetts College of Art and Design. We are the nation's first publicly funded freestanding art and design school. We are all about art and design, and we believe that art and design can change the world for good. MAM is the only uh, museum in Boston dedicated to showing contemporary art and design. And we also feel that by showing this show to our students, future artists and designers, and the public, it'll allow us to see something that we've never seen before, think about something, discuss, and maybe make things better for the future. Some of the works in the exhibition are design, some of them are art objects, and many of them talk about different um, paradigms, experiences, and, and ways of understanding the arc of human reproduction. This work here is one of my favorites. It's by the contemporary artist Annie Liu, who's based in Philadelphia. 
So Annie um, uh, calculated that she makes over five gallons of milk every single week feeding her infant. And so that's what you see here in this beautiful sculpture pumping through. And then next to it is a data visualization. Um, Annie tracked for the first 30 days of her infant's life when she fed and when she diaper changed, which as you can see, takes up so much of her time. You can learn more about the exhibit at ma'am.massart.edu forward slash events. On Friday, June 10th, Roxbury's Nubian Square was transformed into an open-air market and performance space for Black Market's Buy the Block Party. The event, which commemorated both Black Market's fifth birthday and Black Music Month, featured over 40 vendors, a robust speaking program with local elected officials, energetic performances and local artists, and the headliner, KRS-One. This was Black Market's second year producing the large-scale neighborhood event taking place on top of the Black Lives Matter mural, which was painted on Washington Street in 2020. You can learn more about Black Market at blackmarketnubian.com. It was nothing but good vibes and great beats at the Boston Art and Music Soul Festival, or BAMS Fest, on June 11th. Concert goers enjoyed over 15 artists on two stages from 12 to 8 p.m. at Franklin Park's Place Dead Field. Started in 2018 by founder and executive director Catherine T. Morris, BAMS Fest seeks to provide equitable access and opportunity for marginalized audiences and artists of color to experience and create high-caliber arts and music events in Boston. I had a wonderful time here at BAMS Fest 2022. Hi, this is my first BAMS Fest. Really enjoying myself. So glad I came. Really my first time coming, and I'm actually enjoying it. I like that everyone was able to get together and be around, and it's a good vibe. BAMS Fest is beautiful. I'm glad it's here. I hope it continues. I know this used to happen back in the day here, and I hope we continue it for many years to come. All right, this is Catherine T. Morris, founder of Boston Art and Music Soul Fest. It is so important that in order to show that Boston does and has always had black people, we have to create platforms like Boston Art Music Soul Fest. So we encourage you to support, come out, and invest in arts and culture for the future of Boston. As a 10-year initiative with the City of Boston's Office of Arts and Culture, BAMS Fest is sure to set the East Coast on fire. As of yesterday, June 13th, Boston Public School students are no longer required mask, to wear masks in schools. Under the guidance of the Boston Public Health Commission, Superintendent Brenda Casilius made the announcement as COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations continue to decline in conjunction with a steady decrease of positive COVID-19 cases in Massachusetts schools. Casilius mentioned that indoor mask use is strongly recommended among adults and children who are not fully vaccinated and those who have or live with individuals with medical conditions that place them at higher risk for severe COVID-19 disease. The end of the BPS mask mandate comes just 11 days before the end of the school year. Rock's Film, the Roxbury International Film Festival, is the largest film festival in New England, celebrating people of color. Started in 1999, the 10-day festival will offer provocative, fiercely independent works starting from June 23rd to July 2nd. Here's Kelly's conversation with Lisa Simmons, the executive director of Rock's Film. 
Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited to learn all about the Rocks Film Festival. Well, I am incredibly excited to be here. It's really exciting to be back at, uh, at BNN. Again, each year we're here um, to talk about the festival and you all have been so supportive of it, so I'm really excited to be here. Happy to have you. Um, so what is your role with the festival? So I am the artistic and executive director of the Roxbury International Film Festival, also known as Rox Film. Uh, and basically it's being a producer, right? It's uh, making sure that all these parts come together so that we can have a magnificent opportunity to screen films, help filmmakers show their, um, show their films to a wider audience and share these, you know, their vision and their voice with the world. So that's basically it in a nutshell. It's, <laughs> It's a lot. That's a yeah. lot of work. Um, so there's lots of film festivals all over, all over Boston, all over Massachusetts. Why is there one in Roxbury? Well, I mean, it started 24 years ago, if you can believe it, uh, basically to support local filmmakers who weren't getting into other festivals um, and weren't getting the opportunity to exhibit their work. It was it was um, late 90s. Uh, the types of films that festivals are taking in and and um, and exhibiting around black and brown people were you know, sort of like a one-shot deal. It was, you know, you know, gang-related films, you know, but it was like a monolith, um, and that's not who we are. We have films from all, you know, that come from all sorts of different spaces and places, and it was really to think about how we could make sure that we're supporting those other voices um, that weren't being heard, and so that's how it started with, like, seven films, and uh, <laughs> it's grown to about 80, so, uh, wow. so yeah, so, I mean, but really still sticking true to our mission to really support local filmmakers, first and foremost, and then, you know, internationally as well, um, and, and nationally. So you said you started with seven, and now started you're small to 80. <laughs> Where are all these films being shown? That's a lot. <laughs> That is a lot, and, and this year it's great. Um, you know, we're in three different venues. We're at the Museum of Fine Arts. We're at Hibernian Hall, back at Hibernian Hall uh, this year for a good a good time. Um, usually we're there for about one or two films, and this year we're for, there for two full days, so we're excited about that. Um, and then we're partnering with Arts Emerson uh, over at the Paramount Center to, to screen some films as well. So so we're going to be moving a, li a little bit. We, we really try not to overlap our films because yeah. we know our audience likes to go to all of them, um, if not a good chunk of them. So um, we've built in some time. There's a little overlap, but but um, I think everyone will be good. So are there any additional events that happen besides the viewings? Are there talkbacks or? Yes, like there that? are. So there'll be an opening night get together. There'll be something. We try to do something for the filmmakers um, that happen every night. So whether it's just, uh, hey, we're popping into the underground or to Daryl's or to the Renaissance Hotel, it's, we'll say, like, this is where people are gathering after all the films happen. Right. It's a really, really important, you know, that's the most, that's one of the most important things about festivals, too, is that filmmakers get to meet each other and they'll see each other at other festivals and they'll be able to, will be able to build this like camaraderie and that's really why we see ourselves so much as a filmmakers festival and then we're doing an acting workshop for people who oh, want cool. to get into the biz uh, and then we're doing another conversation with the executive director of SAG Indie who's gonna who's, it's a production workshop for people who want to learn about how to use SAG actors and nice. and and the such um, in their production so she's gonna be doing a conversation and then the Secret Society of Black Creatives is doing a big event um, at the record company uh, as well. So we've got a lot of stuff going on in, in addition to the screenings that are going to be happening. And how long does that run for? 
So the festival will run from uh, June 23rd to July 2nd, but okay. we have that um, Rocks Film at Home component. So the in-person uh, events will be happening from June 23rd to June 27th. Okay, wow. And, I mean, June 29th. And then from June 27th to July 2nd is when the online program starts. So for those people who may not feel comfortable mm. going into spaces right now, and I totally understand that, we have curated, a, a specifically curated, um, a, a program for uh, our online program. That's so nice and makes it accessible yeah. to everybody. I love that. So I'm just wondering, what is your favorite part of the festival? Um, I think my favorite part is when the festival happens. Yeah, I mean, every, of course. <laughs> right, and, and everyone is like together again, and, and people are milling about, and people are just excited, and, and, and you know, the talkbacks, the Q&As with the filmmakers and how the audiences are interacting with them. I think that that's where you re we all really start to feel you know, really good about the work that we're doing. Um, you know, and I also love, we also love getting in the films and, and mm. looking at the films and reviewing the films and sort of like finding these gems and saying, oh my gosh, yes, that's for the festival, that's for the festival. So I think that, you know, each piece has its, has its own, you know, excitement. Yes, there's so many pieces. So do you start planning the next one right after? We take a break. <laughs> um, so if people want to learn more, where can they find all of this information? The best place to find the information is on our website, which okay. is rocksfilmfest.com. There's a whole film guide on the website that tells you, that gives you images of the films that were um, screening and then you click on it and it tells you all about them. So um, yeah, we have an amazing webmaster. So. This is so great and I'm so glad that this is happening in Roxbury for Roxbury. Um, thank you for all the work that you do on this. I know thank it's you. a big lift. It <laughs> it's a wonderful lift though. I mean, we're all volunteer and we're just really passionate about what we do and bringing these voices and helping to support um, you know, this incredible genre of, of film. Yes, I can tell. Well, thank you so much <laughs> for being here, Lisa. Um, for BNN News, I'm Kelly Ransom. And we are back with this week's edition of Talk of the Town, the freshest events happening in Boston this week. On Thursday, June 16th, WBUR at City Space for a viewing of the award-winning feature-length documentary, Invisible Imprints. This film follows 12 Boston-based poets and dancers as they travel from Jackson, Mississippi, up the Great Migration Trail to Chicago, performing an original piece called Invisible, Imprints of Racism. A Q&A with choreographer Anna Meyer, filmmaker Jay Paris, and performers will follow the film. You can learn more at wbur.org forward slash events. Artist Jared Katzien for his new exhibit, Southie Then and Now, a neighborhood transformed at Boston Public Library High Park on June 18th. The exhibition highlights the changing landscape of South Boston over the last 50 years, a community with an industrial history currently experiencing development and gentrification. There'll be a community forum from 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m., an opportunity for residents, representatives from the community, organizations, and invited elected officials to meet and discuss the kind of development they wish to see in Hyde Park. Photographer and filmmaker Valerie Ansalme at the Hyde Park branch of the Boston Public Library on Thursday, June 16th at 6 p.m. for a Juneteenth celebration featuring Valerie's photographs, entertainment by Drip, and the premiere screening of As I Am at 6.45 p.m. A Q&A will follow the screening of Ansalme's film. You can learn more at bpl.org. 
In honor of Juneteenth, the oldest nationally observed commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States, the Museum of Fine Arts is holding an open house on June 20th from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Viewers will have access to Turner's Modern World and other special exhibitions. The MFA for performances curated by Side Presents and Art Making and here talks in their latest exhibition, Touching Roots, Black Ancestral Legacies in the Americas. There is so much going on. On Saturday, June 18th at 8 p.m., join the Puppet Showplace Theater for their Summer Cinema Puppet Slam. Leah Laura, the Puppet Showplace's creative residence for Black Puppeteers, Susan Lynn and Audrey Duck for an evening of filmic fiascos, foul play, and all kinds of puppet madness. You can learn more at puppetshowcase.org forward slash slam. I love Puppet Madness. This uh, <laughs> and That Band is taking reggae to a new level with Grammy-nominated Black Uhuru drummer Rangotan and Steel Pan champion Sista D. Join them on June 19th at 4 p.m. This is part of the Elliott Schoolyard Concert Series, 15 live events, Sundays at 4 p.m., June through September at the beautiful Elliott Schoolyard in Jamaica Plain. In honor of Juneteenth and Father's Day, ice cream will be provided by FOMU. Reverend Torley Krua is the founder of Universal Human Rights International, URI, an advocacy group that has made significant achievements in the advancement of refugees and minority groups in the United States. He launched the Free Liberia Movement, which is calling for visa waivers for all Liberians by the United States government and the relapsing of all refugee restrictions by the U.S. Recently, Kelly had a chance to chat with Reverend Krua and learn about the actions being called for in refugee protections in the United States. The following interview contains sensitive subject matter. Viewer discretion is advised. Reverend Krua, thank you so much for being here today. I'm really excited to have you on. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. I've been wishing to come back. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to have you back. I know you've been, it's been a while. Um, so I want to start with what is your role with the Universal Human Rights International? So I'm founder of the Universal Human Rights International, and I'm also on the board of directors of Universal Human Rights. Okay. Yeah. And why was that organization started? It was started because there was a vacuum. When I came to this country, I first came to this country in 1982, but then I worked for uh, uh, Wine Computers. But then, and I came back during the war, there was a civil war in my country, 250,000 people killed. I came to this country um, and I thought that there was gonna be something in place to help refugees who are coming here from Africa. Mm. There was nothing. And we started the Universal Human Rights International to help refugees that are coming here to learn new language, learn new skills, and to live a life, to live a new life here in the United States. And when the uh, war is over, for them to go back to their native countries and bring change to the world. So our, our model of refugee resettlement is not everybody come to America, live and die here. No, we want people to come here when there's violence, mm -hmm. to learn, to live in multicultural, multi-religious, multi-ethnic community, and then when the war is over, build capacity to go back and change the world. That's why we started Universal Human Rights International. That's beautiful, and it's not just for African refugees, oh, it's no, for... We, no, no, we work with people from 48 different countries, and it's not just African refugees, no. We work with the most vulnerable. Right. And one of the striking things for me over the past 30 years has been that 
the, we've made progress, we've accomplished some things, um, but there's still a lot of work to do. Like what? <laughs> For example, today, uh, 2022, we have here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, women and children that have been living here for years that have not been allowed by the government of the United States, Democrats and Republicans, to work. They have no access to humanitarian assistance. They've been banned from humanitarian assistance. So in winter, autumn, summer, and spring, women who escape violence in Africa have been living here on a Democrats and Republicans unable to work and unable to have access to humanitarian assistance. It's wrong, but it's been going on and it's going on right now as I speak to you. And your organization helps them with? We help in a number of ways. One of the things we do is we tell the refugees they are the solution to the refugee problem. For almost 30 years, we've been going to members of Congress. And members of Congress don't really fully understand. They don't have lived experience yeah. as refugees. I was in my house sleeping 4 o'clock in the morning when seven guys armed with AK-47 broke in, put the gun on my head. I know what it means when someone says, I am not safe and I want to live in a safe place. And so I put my life out there and telling the refugees that come to this country, it doesn't matter whether you're black or white, as a human being, you belong here. And so that's what, why they, the refugees, need to stand up and bring their plight to the fore and make sure they're part of the solution on the table right. where the solution is made. How many people do you think that you've worked with since you've started? I've worked with a lot of people, I would say thousands of people. Um, even right now, there's a young man who I work with who was imprisoned by a dictator and we helped to get him out. He came here to Boston. He's out of prison and a dictator is in prison right now for 80 years. Wow. And he is running for president. Yes. Really? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> we, we are making people to get ready to change the world. Yeah. And he stayed in Boston when it was safe for him to go back. He went back. And his name is Tiawan, Counselor Tiawan Gongo. He's an attorney. He's going back to make change in his country. That's really exciting. You must be thrilled to have results like that. I'm thrilled to see results like that, but then I'm also heartbroken yeah. to see that over the past 30 years, I've seen many women coming to this country yeah. in winter. They're from a place where there's no snow, but they come to this place where there's winter, and the government of the United States deprives them of life, I call it death sentence. Right. They cannot live because the government does not allow them to have permits to work. They do not have access to humanitarian assistance. And those are international law, human rights. And I just have to also say, the United States of America is a great country. does a lot of good all over the world. But charity begins at home. Yeah. We cannot allow women and children to be in the snow and deprive them. People who've been raped and tortured deprive them of access to humanitarian assistance, deprive them of permits to work. It makes no sense. But that's what's going on right now in the United States Congress under our current administration and under the past administration. Years. Yeah. Do you do a lot of work, like policy work, going and talking to legislators? Oh, yeah, I try. I try to do policy work. We do policy work. Right now, one of our policy goals is to make sure that every Michelle Wu can help us 
to create for the first time in the city of, in the history of the city of Boston, for the first time to create a city ordinance that gives refugees a chance to sit at the table when refugee matters have been discussed. Mm. Currently, that is not the case. The top refugee resettlement organizations in the United States are headed by people who have never had the experience, the lived experience of fleeing war. Wow. It's all business people. And as such, they are incapable, totally, they don't have the capac capacity to empathize with a woman who came from another country that doesn't have snow living in this country right. without permits to work. It's a shame. And Governor Baker, we are also working to ask Governor Baker and Michelle Wu to make sure that we change the status of nonprofit organization. Yeah. If they are tax exempted, they should be regulated to be diverse and to have people with lived experience on the board of directors and in senior management. I can give you 10 PhDs that have worked with people who mm -hmm. came as refugees that lived here, have gotten PhDs. They qualify, right. but they also have lived experience. Right. But they've been excluded completely from the discourse of refugee uh, refugee solutions in the United States of America and in Europe. It's wow. a shame. It's really important that you're doing this work, though, and I'm really glad that you shared your story and your experience that definitely has a lot of impact on the work that you do. Um, if someone is a refugee in Boston, mm -hmm. uh, what can they do to get involved um, and get resources from your organization? So the refugee resettlement uh, process is handled by the federal government. Yeah. And if someone comes here as a refugee or as, as an asylum seeker, the way they get access to food stamps or permits to work is through the federal government. Right. Um, what we do is to try to influence the policy. Like right now, I'm appealing to um, Attorney General Healy mm. to make sure that these things we are talking about, city ordinance in the city of Boston, uh, the, the, the Attorney General, to make sure that we have a seat at the table for people who've been tortured, raped, and now are trying to get a new start to have safe safety in this country. We just had a situation here where we had war in Ukraine in the past three months, mm -hmm. less than three months probably. And like lightning, all the Ukrainians have work permit before they get here. They already have passed uh, uh, the executive order for them to have work permit. Whereas mm -hmm. I know women and children that are here from Congo, from Liberia, from other places that have been here for years yeah. that don't even have work permits yet. I'm really grateful that you came here today and uh, you're certainly going to be making more change, I can tell. Um, so keep fighting this fight, Reverend Karua. This is yours. And, oh, thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being on, and people can go to freeliberia.org to learn more all about this, yes? Yes, to learn about this and get involved. Well, thank you for joining us on this fluke of a Tuesday. You can normally vibe with us every Monday and Thursday at 5.30 p.m. Don't forget, you can also stream or watch us on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be broadcast at 9.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, RCN Channel 15, and Fios Channel 2161. Love to listen to the radio? You can hear BNN News at 6.30 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. on WBCA 102.9 FM. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight for BNN News. I'm Kelly Ransom. And I'm Faith Maffedon. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you on Thursday.